Good morning, my name is Wade, and um, we'll be looking at God's Word this morning. If you look in your bulletin, this is um, our passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. If you're following us online, welcome, and the text should show up on the screen. Verse 18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. This is the word of God. So today is September 11th, and I don't think that any of us can hear that date without thinking about what happened 21 years ago. Uh, September 11th, of course, the day that changed um, li- the lives and the rhythms and the norms and expectations of our country. And this was a, an event that was disastrous and it was tragic and it was unthinkable and it was catastrophic. And it's difficult to think about what good has come from it uh, since this event happened all these years ago, um, the country is not the same. I, I, I was thinking about what the world was like before um, 2001, and it, it's hard to remember. I remember that getting on planes was much easier. I remember that you could say certain things, um, and people didn't take them the way that the ways that they did. Um, security and the place of America in the world, and it's not. I don't intend to make any commentary on the events of September 11th today. But I, but because this may be on our mind, I want us to think about another tragic event, another disastrous event. Of course, we're talking about the cross this morning. And if we look at the cross, apart from how we view it as believers now, um, if you were there in the first century, when you watched someone be crucified, if you had the stomach to do that, it was something offensive and terrible. Um, If you were on the cross, it was disastrous. It was catastrophic. And that could be the cross for us today if we don't think about what it really means. And uh, Jared Tolkien, he has this word. I think he made it up. It's eucatastrophe. Eucatastrophe. if something catastrophic happens, sometimes that's, that's all it is. Sometimes there doesn't seem to be any meaning to it. But what is eucatastrophe? What's this concept of eucatastrophe? It's this idea that God will take something that is disastrous, something catastrophic, and he will turn it for good. He will turn it for good. And this is what the cross is for us today. We're talking about the cross um, 
The sermon, the, the title of this sermon is The Foolishness of God. We're going to talk about what the cross means today, just like we did last week. And um, I hope that by the Spirit of God, He will open our eyes to see just how offensive and distasteful and horrible the cross is. But therein is our hope. Therein is the hope for us as individuals. Therein is the hope for us as a church. And therein is the hope for the redemption of the world when God will make all things new. So to recap, um, we looked at verses 17 through 21. So there is some overlap between the verses in last week's message and today's message. We're going through um, 1 Corinthians chapters 1 and 2 for these several weeks. So let me give you a quick recap for those of us who uh, might need a reminder. Um, sometimes I preach things and I forget them by Monday. Um, so sometimes I need reminders as well. But here is what we discussed. We talked about how the cross is an offensive symbol. It's not something, if you were there in the day, in the first century, it's not something that should be brought up in everyday conversation because the cross is an instrument of torture and humiliation and death. No respectable person would let such a thing have any bearing on their life. And yet in this passage, Paul's telling us that this message of the Son of God dying, this humiliating death on the cross, this is at the center of the Corinthian church. It's what binds the church together. This, this message that Jesus Christ and him crucified, this word of the cross, this is the answer to the, uh, to the division in the Corinthian church. This is the solution to the immorality and the sin in the Corinthian church. Paul begins the book of Corinthians saying this, you have been called to be saints together. And he addresses this, um, this issue of division in the church. And he continues to do so in 1 Corinthians. He does it in 1 Corinthians 3. But he says, you guys are divided. You guys are not looking at each other with the right eyes. So the word of the cross, this is your hope, this foolish word of the cross. And as we go through the text, we see that the word of the cross, it says, it divides humanity in two. This is verse 18. There are two categories in which you belong. You're either perishing or you are being saved. If you're the former, it's folly. If you're the latter, it's the power of God. And this is what we keep in mind. This is what the Corinthian church needs to keep in mind. As they think about their own lots, they see the division, they see the conflicts. And Paul says, you're not looking at each other correctly. Because what you see is your different preferences, your different um, backgrounds, socioeconomic or cultural. You're seeing the things that's maybe external. You don't like the way that they talk or the way they look or the background from which they came. And Paul says, if you take seriously the message of the cross, then you can't look at each other any other way except here is someone who is being saved along with me. And yet this word is foolishness to the world, this word of the cross. It shouldn't make sense to those who are outside the church. And then as we continue on in this passage, verse 19, it tells us this. It says that God promises to destroy the wisdom of the wise, to destroy the discernment of the discerning. This is a quote from Isaiah 29. God is committed to destroying every worldview and philosophy that people rely on to make sense of reality. 
So that is the background for us today. And today I'm going to stretch out the passage to verse 25. And I'm going to look at what Paul says and pay attention to what he is saying to us today. Not just to the Corinthian church, but to those of us here today. Paul says that if you are either a Jew or a Greek, um, for those of us here, uh, we're Gentiles and we're not Jewish, so we might fall into the Greek category. But um, this is one of my points is this. How is the crucified Jesus foolish? The word of the cross, this man, Jesus Christ, how is he foolishness to the world? He's foolish because people see this man, they see the message of the church, they see this word of the cross, and they see that here is someone, here is something, here is a message that doesn't give me what you want. And Paul says this in verse 22. What do the Jews want? He says that they want signs. They demand signs. So Paul, he's looking at the background of the Corinthian church, and he knows that some people come from a Jewish background, maybe. And Paul's referring to the Jews during the ministry of Jesus. They're interested in Jesus insofar as he could demonstrate his power. They're interested in Jesus insofar as he can give them what they want. The way that they test Jesus, the way that they evaluate him, is this. Jesus, will you meet my demands? The Jews are living under Roman oppression, and they want political freedom. They want to leave the oppression of their oppressors. Will Jesus give them what they want? They want a Messiah with power and might, someone who could win their battle by force. And they look at Jesus and they say, if this Messiah is powerful, then I will follow him. Now think of us today. Um, you don't have to be Jewish to have this mindset. Think of the religious. Think of yourself. Think of the person next to you. They go to God with their demands for a certain type of lifestyle. And they will submit to God as long as God is serving their purposes. It's conditional. They say this, If God answers my prayer... If God heals me, if God gives me the life that I want, if God gives me the church that I want, if God fill in the blank, then I will trust him. Then it's worth me giving my life to this man. And this is how we demand a sign. I read this uh, great quote by an author earlier, um, earlier this week, and he says this. The inner logic of idolatry, this is what the Jews had. They had this idolatrous idea of Jesus. The inner logic of idolatry is that it aims to make God visible, controllable, and thus available to our own agenda so we can bend reality to our wills. Idolatry occurs when we want God, when we want to make God our instrument, the means by which we can achieve our own ends. This type of thinking does not renounce God. It wants to use God to give us that which we think we really need to be happy, significant, and secure. Do you want to be happy? Do you want to be significant? Do you want to be secure? I bet you you do. And I bet you you're tempted to think of God 
as the instrument, as the means by which I will get what I want in life. And what is this type of thinking? It's demanding a sign. God, give me what I want, and then I will worship you. God, give me what I want, and then I will live this way, or say this thing, or abandon this whatever it is I'm stuck in. Do we have this mindset? Do we demand from God a sign? And then Paul says, after the Jews, there are the Greeks. The Corinthian church, they had an enormous respect for intellect and rhetoric. They looked up to those who were knowledgeable. They were looking for people to articulate or express something that would help them make sense of the world, of the people around them, of themselves. They wanted a structure of thought that would allow them to understand reality and the ability to explain everything around them. Perhaps it's not so crass as looking to God, looking to a God who will serve their desires like the Jews that Paul mentions in this passage. But maybe they can find a God replacement to serve their intellectual desires. They want a set of beliefs or a system of thought that accounts for all the variables of of the natural world, something that makes logical sense, something that allows them to live without doubt. In this type of thinking, there's no room for mystery, there's no room for enigma, and everything else is just backwards and superstitious. Um, You might have seen these signs or these flags that have been waving in the Bay Area. Um, They became more prominent, I think, in the past uh, couple years since COVID, but um, they'll say that we believe in X, Y, and Z. So we believe that um, certain lives matter, or we believe that uh, females have these specific rights, or we believe in science. And when I, when I look at that, um, what catches my eye is this, that we believe in science as if science is something that um, some people don't believe in, and maybe some people don't. And uh, you could go on YouTube and find people that have these weird theories, and there is a reaction to this maybe anti-scientific type of mindsets in this culture. But some people, they want everything down to a science. They want to be able to say, two plus two really does equal four. They want certainty. They want something that can explain the world around them. Is that us? Is intellect, is rhetoric is a way to explain all of reality what you're looking for. Or again, because you are spending your Sunday at church, um, it might look like this from a religious perspective. We say to God, if you are who you say you are, show yourself in a way that makes sense to me. Show yourself, God, in a way that makes sense to me. Because I have my standards of justice, and I want you to fall in line with that. I have my sense of fairness. I have my values. I have my priorities. And God, I want you to fall in line with these things because this is how I view the world. The Jews seek a sign. The Greeks seek wisdom and intellect. Verse 23, Paul tells us that the Gentiles seek these things as well. 
these are the Gentiles. The, 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 Jew, the folly is to the Jews and the Gentiles. God addresses all of us. Do we seek a God who caters to our desires and grants us the safety that we need, the peace? If so, then the word of the cross is going to be a stumbling block to you. The Greek word for stumbling block, if you look at the original, original Greek, is scandalon, scandalon. And that sounds familiar because we have this English word scandal. What is a scandal? What is a stumbling block? In the Old Testament, there is this concept of um, a rock. Actually, uh, D- Jeff, he led us in the call to worship, and he brings up the stone that the builders rejected. There are several points in the Old Testament that talk about stones or rocks. In Psalm 118, it's the, ro- the stone that the builders rejected. Why do they reject this stone to build their life on, to build whatever institution they have? Why do they reject it? Because it trips them up. It stumbles them. Later on in 1 Corinthians, in, ver- in, in chapter 8, Paul talks about this again. There is this stumbling block. And the way that we can understand this scandal, the way that we can understand the stumbling block is that it is something that traps people. It's something that causes them to rethink how they think about life. September 11th might have been that. The cross might be that for some people. The cross is a event that causes us, if we look at it with the right eyes, as a moment of crisis. And what is a moment of crisis? A a moment of crisis is when there is something in front of you and you say, I need to make a decision. I need to make a decision when I look at the cross. And to some people, what their decision is, I reject that. This is what it means to be scandalous. You reject that. If you're looking for a God who caters to your desires and safety and peace, then the cross will be a stumbling block to you. If you're looking for a way of life that makes sense of everything, the cross, the word of the cross will scandalize you. If you're looking for logic and an airtight system of thoughts that gives you certainty, then the cross will be foolishness to you. The cross is offensive if we think about it. Because what does the cross say? The cross says that you have no power to become who you're supposed to be. Contrary to culture, you are not good enough. You are not enough. You cannot figure things out on your own. You don't have enough willpower. You don't have enough discipline to become the type of person that God will accept in biblical language it means the word we use is sin all have fallen short of the glory of God there is none righteous our hearts are deceitful above all things if not for the work of the cross you are a slave to this idea that you need to make sense of the world you're a slave to the idea that you can fix things on your own or you can fix the things of other people on your own do you want security do you want certainty the cross will not give that to you what the cross says to us is this this hero of your story is not you 
And this is what's foolish to the world. Let me put this before you. The hero of your life, the hero of your story is not you. The hero of the story is God who stepped out of eternity and he became a man to walk the same earth that you and I walk on. He gave up all his privilege and status. He came from the worst zip code. He spent most of his time with the losers of the day. Jesus was homeless. Jesus had bad breath and B.O. Jesus disappointed 99% of the people that he spoke to. He was sentenced to death. He didn't open his mouth when he was condemned, even though he was innocent. The word of God tells us that he was like a lamb led to a slaughter as he made his way to the cross. This torture, this instrument of torture and humiliation and death. And the word of the cross also says this, that because of your guilt, the hero, Jesus, he suffered and died in your place. The creator of the entire universe did this for your sake. And the way that he exercised power was to lay his own power down. And this is God who did this. This is the word of the cross. The cross doesn't make sense. The cross forces us to reconsider whether or not you're really self-sufficient, whether you can really find meaning apart from your creator. And the word of the cross says that truth, real truth, what reality really is cannot be found in philosophy or wisdom because truth is a person. Truth is the man, Jesus Christ. The mission, the vision of our church is to follow Jesus and to help others follow Jesus. And do you understand the implication of that? You follow a man who calls you to live in the world's eyes a nonsensical life. It shouldn't make sense. When people look at Indelible Grace Church, they should say, it's weird, the stuff that they believe. It's strange the way that they live, the way that they spend their money, the way that they spend their time, the type of people that they choose to associate with. Strange. I don't get it. The author of Graham Tomlin says this of the way that God works. God still works in and through what is to conventional human understanding, weak, powerless, and apparently irrational, rather than through what is strong, powerful, and reasonable. In the light of the cross, human power counts for nothing before God. Verse 24, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. This is our power, indelible grace, church. This is our wisdom, this word of the cross. When we look at the word of the cross, we see the heart of God. And God chooses to use the weak and the lowly. He chooses to use those who the world does not respect to do his work This is what is true of God. God loves to be represented by people that the world looks down on. This is how God wants to be portrayed, by people that the world does not respect. If you believe in the message of Christ, this should be a humbling thing because people should be looking at your life and going, they're wasting their life. Why do they do what they do? And in the coming weeks, we'll talk about this. We'll talk about 
how utterly distinct the followers of Christ are. Why is the church so full of weirdos and awkward people? Is it because God loves them? Because of what they did? Because what they say is impressive? Well, our church should be made up of people who believe this strange message, this word of the cross. And our church can be shaped by this word of the cross. How can it be shaped? There's a um, show uh, by, the, by the name of King of the Hill. And I've, I've uh, given this illustration a couple times because I just, to me it's so fun um, that there was something in pop culture that addressed uh, stuff that happens in co- the contemporary church. But um, I'm not sure if King of the Hill is still on nowadays, but you might know this show. But there's a, um, there's a scene in one of the episodes when the father, Hank, he's concerned about the people that his son Bobby is hanging around. Um, Bobby is... So Hank, he sends his son to... Uh, his son Bobby to a church youth group and the youth group is led by a pastor who's also uh, he also leads a rock and roll band and um, there's a point in the in the episode when Hank he realizes that his son Bobby by being a part of the youth group this is doing his son more harm than it is doing good and and, and uh, he, he he comes to this realization and he, he finds his son at a Christian music festival um, if you've ever been to a Christian music festival, it's weird. Um, the pastor chases after the the band. The pastor, he's lead, he has an electric guitar in his hand. And um, the pastor tells Hank, he says, Hank, this is how we testify of our faith. And he strikes a power chord on his guitar. And, he, and the guitar, it screeches. And the pastor goes, praise him. Praise him. And Hank says to him, um, to the pastor, he says, can't you see that you're not making Christianity Christianity better? You're just making rock and roll worse. And this is on primetime television. And this is a valid critique of what we see so much in the Western church. We see people trying to make Christianity cool. We want to make the message appealing. We try to make it fit into culture. If you follow pop culture... Um, what type of church does Justin Bieber or Chris, Pat, Chris Pratt or uh, Selena Gomez, what type of church do they go to? I'm not going to bash on these churches. You can make your own decisions on what type of churches they go to. But people look at them and they go, that is a cool church. I want to go there. I like their music. I think I can live my life and still go here on Sundays and go back to my life on Monday and live the type of life that I want to live But this is not how it should be in the church. The message of the cross goes against our understanding of reality. As long as we want power, as long as we want relevance, as long as we want to be seen as respectable, as long as we live in a culture that prizes self-realization and self-assertion and self-celebration, we'll never understand the cross if we live in this culture and we don't fight against it. An indelible grace church, we should think of the cross as what it is, as an instrument of suffering and torture and humiliation and shame. The theologian uh, Martin Luther from the 1500s, he says that there are two types of theologians. A theologian is anyone who has thoughts about God. So if you've ever thought about God, if you've ever given um, 
your mind and attention to the things of God, even if you don't attend church, um, congratulations, because you are a theologian. And Martin Luther says that there are two types of theologians. And 500 years ago, he wrote this in his commentary on this text in 1 Corinthians. This is what he says. That person does not deserve to be called a theologian who looks upon the invisible things of God as though they were clearly perceptible in those things which have actually happened. He deserves to be called a theologian, however, who comprehends the visible and manifest things of God seen through suffering and the cross. A theologian of glory calls evil good and good evil. A theologian of the cross calls the thing what it actually is. So he says this, if you want to understand that God... You need to consider whether or not you're a theologian of glory or a theologian of the cross because all of real theology comes down to how do you view the cross? Martin Luther says the theologian of the cross thinks this way. God achieves his intended purposes by doing the exact opposite of that which humans might expect. The supreme example of this is the cross itself. God triumphs over sin and evil by allowing sin and evil to triumph, and evil to triumph apparently over him. His real strength is demonstrated through apparent weakness. This is the way of a theologian of the cross thinks about God. If you are a theologian of the cross, this is what it means for your life. That if injustice happens in your life, if you see suffering, if you see that life is sometimes unfair, if you see that you have desires that will remain unfulfilled. If you see that faithfulness to God sometimes means humiliation and defeat, then you are a theologian of the cross. If you can say, I'll still worship God despite these things. Because you worship a God who works in invisible ways. He works in ways that don't make sense to us. Because God is found in sadness and suffering and death. God is found in the cross of Christ. So whenever God introduces suffering into your life, if you understand the cross, you can say this. I don't like it, but there's God in my suffering. There is God in my sadness. Or you might belong to this other group of theologians that Martin Luther talks about. And this is what he writes about them. The opposite to this is the theologian of glory. In simple terms, the theologian of glory assumes that there is basic continuity between the way of the world and the way that God is. If strength is demonstrated through raw power on earth, then God's strength must be the same, only extended to infinity. To such a theologian, the cross is simply foolishness, a piece of nonsense. How do you know if you're a theologian of glory? You might have heard this phrase, the prosperity gospel. And there are some people that belong to churches where um, they preach this message that they say, God wants you to be healthy and wealthy and happy. Um, And I think that's a little bit too crass because I think that we might be able to discern that we shouldn't accept a message that is so obviously against what the Bible teaches. But do you know that we all think this way as prosperity, gospel, likers? 
we like the idea of prosperity because I bet you that you are working to provide a better home and education for your kids if you have children. I bet you that you're going to work toward a better position in your career. I bet you that when you're, you're able to buy the things that you want, you say that God is blessing you. I bet you when you're in good health, you'll say, God is good to me because I have good health. God is good to me because I'm living the type of life that I want. And to be sure, the Bible says that all good and perfect gifts come from the Father. But if you believe the cross, the word of the cross is true, it also means this. That if God were to take all those things away from me, that that also is good that maybe God's blessing upon your life is stripping you of the things that you rely on. Over the course of your life, you're going to be disappointed and frustrated and angry at God. In the course of the life of our church, some of you have told me, you don't like what God is doing. You're angry. And I've felt that as well. But what does God say in the text of verse 19? I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And let me say this again because I said this in the beginning of the message. God is committed to destroying the things that you rely on to make sense of the world. God loves you so much that he will take away the things that you love so that you can understand what the cross means. So indelible grace church, what kind of theologian are you? Do you put God on trial when your life does not go the way that you want it to go? When there is unfairness and suffering and loss, what do you say to God? Will we be a church that is centered on this offensive, foolish message? Or will we care more about being a church that is respectable, one that fits into the world? Are we okay with being out of step with our culture? Are we okay with being considered fools? Our, our passage ends with this. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. This is the foolishness of God that we can hang everything on This is what we need to hear over and over every week. And I'm going to end with this reading of the word of the cross. And um, I'm just going to read you scripture, if that's cool. Because if I'm going to say anything today, this is what matters most. I've given you my opinion sometimes. And if you're trusting on the opinion of pastors, um, be careful. Because you shouldn't trust me. You can trust the word of God. And let me read to you the word of the cross. I'm going to read you verses that span all of scripture. And this is what we're going to end with. And listen to this. This is God's word to us. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created us. What can be known about God is plain to us because God has shown it to us. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived since the creation of the world in the things that have been made.
so we are without excuse. Although we know God, we do not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but have become futile in our thinking, and our foolish hearts are darkened. Claiming to be wise, there's that word, we have become fools and have exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men. We have committed two evils. We have forsaken God, the fountain of living waters, and we've dug wells for ourselves, broken wells that can hold no water. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. Everyone does what is right in their own eyes. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together we have become worthless, having no hope, and without God in the world. We fade like a leaf, and our sins, like the wind, take us away. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. By works of the law, no one will be justified in God's sight. So, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of humanity, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Because of our, of our stubborn and unrepentant hearts, we are storing up wrath for ourselves on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, gave us his only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the wrath-absorbing sacrifice for our sins. Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, the radiance of his glory, the exact imprint of his nature, who upholds the universe with the word of his power. He is the holy and righteous one, the author of life, the Lord of glory, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. The word became flesh, God with us. And he was wounded for our rebellion and crushed for our sins because the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. God canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And so God made him who knew no sin to become sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus Christ died for our sins. He was buried, and he was raised on the third day, just as the scripture said. And after making purification for our sins... He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now the righteousness of God has been revealed. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for for all who believe, for all who have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. 
Now these things have been spoken so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise them up on the last day. This is the word of the cross. Will you pray with me? Father, remind us again. I hope that we hear the gospel every single week. This is how it has been and this is how it should be and how it will be by the grace of God. But we forget it so often and this is why we need to be reminded. I pray that the truth of the cross would sink into our bones. I pray that our church would be a church that never forgets the word of the cross. That centers around the word of the cross. And we find our hope in this word of the cross, God. And make it true of Indelible Grace Church. Make it true of us. We pray this in the name of Jesus.